0: It is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers. Uh, now that that's out of the way, let's go and uh, and get on with the. Uh, no, I'm teasing. I, I planned that comment just so you know. So that my when I was growing up, my dad uh, my dad was always kind of a snarky guy, and I can, it, this is actually a good thing that he did for the children. Every time Mother's Day would come around, we would say to him as young kids, "What are we planning for Mother's Day?" And his response would be, "I don't know. She's not my mother." And, uh, and actually what that did, because my dad loves my mom, what that did is that it put the onus on us to plan Mother's Day. And so ever since I was a little guy, we uh, planned Mother's Day for mom, and uh, it, it was a good practice. And uh, I know my kids have planned some things for Kim this afternoon, which is a good thing. Before we pray and get into our topic today, let me set it up by asking you this. Have you ever received something in your life only in hindsight years later to realize what an amazing thing you had? Uh, Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. Most of us have, whether it's a relationship or a thing or whatever. There's lots of times in life where we look in hindsight and and we realize, boy, I didn't realize what I had at the time, kind of wish I did. As you guys know, I'm a a car guy. Uh, One of the cars that I owned when I was in high school was an unusual car, it was a 1967 Austin Mini. You'll see a picture of it here. And uh, that's literally the car, and uh, that car, Uh, was not a usual car back in the 60s, let alone even in the, the 70, uh, 1980s when I bought it when I was in high school. All my friends had muscle cars. I found this listed in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and I drove to downtown Cleveland. I paid 500 bucks for this little micro car, and I was the talk of my high school. In fact, one winter, they actually tipped the car over into a snowdrift just to have some <laughs> some fun with me. And uh, it was was a great little car, 500 bucks, and and it's a British car, as many of you know. And it was a forerunner to what now is the big craze with the Mini Cooper. And, you know, after my senior year in high school, I sold it for a few hundred bucks to a friend of mine and kind of forgot about it. I look back now, and I wish I had kept that car. Because i got to tell you, these things are are, are a hot commodity. Everybody wants them. They take them back to the pre-Mini Cooper days. And I probably could get a lot of money for that car today but I didn't keep it. Because why? I had no idea what I had at the time. And isn't that just life? Many times we look back and we don't realize what we had. See, that's what we're trying to deal with in this series. Right now, what I'm putting before you is that if you are a believer in Jesus, or even if you're thinking of being a believer in Jesus, there are things entities aspects of what he brings into our lives 10 things at least in the early gospel or the early parts of john that jesus brought to this earth that do nothing but help us realize what we have in him we've looked so far in this series at the fact that he gives us his constant presence schrader taught us that he gives us his forgiveness we looked at the fact that he gives us his reception into his realm his revelation to us and today We're going to take a look at his glory, all things that Jesus gives us so that you and I never have to look back and say, gosh, I didn't realize who this Jesus was and what he is all about. But we're trying to help us understand Jesus in a richer way in this series. And that's what I'm praying toward for you and me. So in that vein, let's continue to do that. And then we're going to dive right in. Father God, I pray that as we look at your word now, As we turn the page into John chapter 2 that you might be honored and glorified pleased with what we're about to do I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give each of us insight and wisdom into your word so that we might wrap up here in a half an hour or so with some knowledge about you that we can put into practice in our daily living God we're tackling a big subject today it's the idea of your glory really hard to do in 30 minutes, but we're going to try. We pray for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to read together about the very first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when I read the Gospels, what do you guys do? You stand. So why don't you stand? Venues and campuses stand. I'd say even if you're dialing in from home, and you can stand because it's respect for God and his word. So John records this, just follow along in your monitors, John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. It's an amazing story. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You may be seated. So here's the deal with this account, and that is that over the last 2,000 years, there have been plenty of pastors and preachers and theologians who have tried to allegorize a lot of the things going on in this story, but I'm telling you, when you look close, John is trying to get us to see only one thing. Over the years, many preachers and Bible teachers have tried to find a lot of pictorial practical meaning in the various intricacies of this account. So they argue that Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding, so Jesus is pro-marriage. Let's preach that. He turned upwards of 180 gallons of water into choice wine so he can deliver for you a voluminous choice miracle. Let's preach that. Or how about this? There's only six jugs of water here, not the better Hebrew number of seven. So it shows the fallenness and imperfection of the world, and it makes the miracle stand out that much more. Let's preach that. Some have even posited that this entire miracle is one big object lesson concerning the power of God to take us from law to grace even though this passage doesn't mention anything about law or grace. There's no shortage of people who have tried to find subtle, if not hidden, meanings in this passage. And though some of them might be legit, I don't know. What is most clear to me, however, is that John goes to great length to editorialize, at the end of this account, the core of why he believes, inspired by God, that this all happens. Look again at verse 11. He says this, The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, now here it is, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So why did Jesus do this miracle at this time, the very first one in the Gospel of John, maybe the first one ever? What is the purpose of Jesus revealing himself this way? It's simple. He wanted to manifest his glory, whatever that means, we'll parse it out in a minute, so that people might believe. It's in keeping with this entire series. I'm telling you, the Gospel of John is not that complicated. Jesus shows up on the scene and he reveals certain aspects of himself, his presence, his forgiveness, his reception, his revelation. Now hear his glory for one purpose and one purpose only. And you're going to hear this word a hundred times throughout the Gospel of John, so that we might believe. He's concerned about your faith. He's concerned about the composition of your heart. He's concerned about your life and that you believe and trust in Him and not the garbage of this world or all the other things, but in Him. And so everything that He does is bent on pointing you like a neon sign to Himself so that you might believe and trust in Him. He manifests His glory. That's the point of this miracle, so that we might believe. So, if this is true, and I think it is, it's pretty obvious, then the key question becomes, well, what then is the glory of God and or Jesus? H- have you ever thought about that? I-, I mean, Christians use this word glory all the time. I-, I hear Christians say, glory to God, glory to God. At Christmas time, we read the Christmas story that's a, in which the angels say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill to men. There's even a movie starring Matthew Broderick entitled Glory. So our world uses the word glory. But unlike so many biblical words, I think most Christians would be hard-pressed to precisely and clearly define this term or concept. In fact, in my study this week, I tried to I was trying to research some some modern-day authors, good theologians, and what what their one-sentence definition is of the glory of God. And one, whom I respect greatly, basically said, I don't think it can be done. I don't think you can put in one sentence something as big as what the glory of God is. But I want us to try. You know why? Because we're Scottsdale Bible Church, for crying out loud, and that's what we do. So let's try to take a stab at defining or giving a synopsis of the glory of God in one sentence. And in all seriousness, guys, here's what I think it is. And that is that the glory of God is the beauty of God's being and the beauty of his character. I've thought about this, I've studied the Bibles for, for years, and I think when you add up what the Bible says the glory of God is, it's the beauty of his being and the beauty of his character. So here's what I've noticed over the years, and that is that whenever the Bible refers to God's glory, and it does a lot, it uses this word a lot, it consistently refers to Now, don't miss this, to anything that shines forth from God. I've taught you that before. So anything that emanates from God, the biblical writers refer to as his glory. But then also Jesus taught us that even self-contained in the Trinity, even if it doesn't shine forth, self-contained in the Trinity for all of eternity is also God's glory. So whether it shines forth or whether it's self-contained in God, the biblical writers smack a label on it. That this is God's glory. So let me show you what I mean. Jesus talks about the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. That, that would be the Trinity. The psalmist talks about how when creation emanated from God, that creation becomes the glory of God. The New Testament talks about how Jesus, when he showed up on the scene as the second person of the Trinity, is the literal glory of the Godhead, shining forth God's beauty and being. Even the psalmist says that God's name, Yahweh, Jehovah, is glorious. Why? Because it shines forth from God. And so maybe now you can start to understand more richly how and why Romans 3.23 tells us that as human beings we fall short of God's glory. The context and meaning there is that we fall short of his perfections, the beauty of his being and character. That's what it's getting at. And so it seems pretty clear to me, guys, that when you add up all that the Bible says about glory as referred to God and Jesus, it's referring to the beauty and perfection of anything that is God. Listen, anything intrinsic to his character, contained in his being, or manifest even in his actions, which, by the way, if you're tracking with me, would include anything about God, right? (laughs) I mean, what about God would not be beautiful? Anybody want to take a stab at that? The answer is nothing. I mean, if God is perfect, if God is God, and he is, then anything contained in him is perfect and good, holy and set apart. And what the biblical writers did is they say that is glorious. That is his glory by its very nature. That's why I say glory is the beauty of Of God's being and character and God is like that through and through and to be sure the New Testament word for glory which is the word doxa is translated this way it's translated splendor brightness amazing power greatness and it's used in lots of settings it's used for human beings it's used for God but what's fascinating is that every time we use that word applied to God it almost always refers to something beautiful or perfect about him So, for instance, the Bible tells us that his actions are glorious, like when he created the world or part of the Red Sea or came in the form of Christ or gave us the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us his attributes are glorious, being all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, all-good. This is going to blow some of you away. His utterances in his word, anytime God speaks, it's the glory of God. We'll get more to that here in a minute this is going to surprise some of you. Even his church, you and I, is referred to as the glory of God. Why? Because it's God moving, manifesting himself in and through his visible church. And so this is why this somewhat nebulous, subjective term that Christians throw around, glory, is so important and powerful. Please see this. Because when you equate glory with the beauty of God's being and the perfection of his character, you begin to realize that anytime you and I see, understand, or experience this in God, it can't help but make us fall more in love with him and believe, as we're going to see, on a whole new level. That's the glory of God. Now, Even with this incredibly clear and cogent explanation of the glory of God that I just gave you, I know that there is a still, that this is a somewhat nebulous, hard to get into my heart and mind kind of subject. It really is. I mean, it's not an easy thing to get in our heads and hearts around. So what I want to do is, in the 22 minutes we have remaining, is I want to go back to our story here in John chapter 2, and I want to note three things that Jesus teaches us here about his glory, three things that do nothing but help us understand it more richly and even long for it more meaningfully in our very lives. And here's the first thing this account shows us, and that is that Jesus shows us his glory, now you're going to like this, in ordinary life. He shows us his glory in ordinary life. This is one of the things, without allegorizing this story, that the vast majority of commentators at least point out in a cursory way that this scene that Jesus decided to manifest his glory in was a very ordinary first-century scene. It was a wedding. Lots of them happened back then. Lots of them happen today. They're special events but relatively commonplace. And that's the scene that Jesus chose to manifest his glory. And then when you look closely with all the details that John gives us here, because there's quite a few, you can see that John's trying to get us to see the very ordinary, everyday aspect of this wedding. He gives us the town's name, Cana, about 8 to 10 miles north of Nazareth. Everybody would have known that back then. He tells us about the presence of wine, obviously very important in Mediterranean culture a huge deal at wedding celebrations back then. In fact, some of you don't like this because you avoid wine, and and probably for good reason, but the reality is is that the Talmud, an important Jewish commentary, said this about wine in Jesus' day. They said, there is no rejoicing save with wine. (laughs) That's a dangerous quote for some of you, but the reality is is that back then, wine was an integral part of a wedding celebration, not drunkenness, but at least having wine there. And again, everybody would have known that. This is a very ordinary scene. And then you got six stone water jars used for purification. And that sounds super religious, and it is. Mark 7, verses 1-4 through talks about how the Jewish culture washed hands, not just for cleanliness, but for purification before they ate. And there's a lot of guests here, so six stone water jars. But it's a very ordinary scene. That would have been common at a Jewish wedding. And then you got the master of the feast. This phrase is only used once in the New Testament here, but our best stab is that this is kind of the modern day equivalent of a wedding coordinator. So again, in the everyday scene, they would have known that. They got a wedding coordinator there. And then you got all the other characters mentioned, the bridegroom, the servants, Jesus's mom, his brothers, the newly formed disciples. It's the guest list. You see, all of these things were things that any person in the first century, hearing this story or reading it, would be familiar with. These are everyday things. A town they all knew, wine, water jars, a wedding coordinator, all the guests. And they lend support to a very ordinary scene being painted here, now watch this, in which Jesus decides to manifest his glory. And if that doesn't do something for you, I don't know what will. Because that's the point, guys, is that Jesus loves to manifest his glory in and through our everyday, ordinary aspects of life. He does. He loves to break into the mess of your life and show up in the mundane, ordinary aspects of it and give you a glimpse of his glory. A glimpse of anything that might emanate from him, a glimpse of his beauty, so that you might know for who he is. I'm telling you guys, this idea of this glory, from us, this is the epiphany we need to have today. We need to realize what we have in Jesus and the opportunities before us each moment of each day. You're saying, well, how how does he manifest his glory still today? Let let me share with you a few things here. You can look up here on the screen, but just some everyday things that you and I do that I'm not sure we realize how glorious they are. Uh, The first thing is, is that he loves to reveal his glory in the Word of God. I I, I said that earlier. Uh, God loves to speak to you. Do you know that? (laughs) He does. He, He loves to tell you he loves you. He loves to speak truth to you. He loves to help you understand him and one of the primary, the primary way he speaks to us is through his written words so that when we read it and we understand it and when we realize new and fresh things about him, now don't miss this. The Bible says that's glorious. The Bible says that's his glory. And some of us need to start seeing it that way. I mean, when we start our day and we read the daily bread or we open up and have our little devotional time and we say, oh, that's a nice thought about God. And then we go on our way. What you don't miss, what you don't realize, is that you just smacked up into his glory. He just revealed something about himself to you. The God of all eternity, the maker of heaven and earth, the the redeemer of your very life, just broke through and revealed something to your mind and heart. And you want to ask, what's for breakfast? (laughs) The reality is, is that that's a holy moment, that's a good moment. And again, I'm not trying to brag here because I'm really I'm not as spiritual as many of you guys try to make me out to be. But I get to study the Word every week and there are times when I just take a breath and I sit back in my chair at my office and at home and I say, oh my gosh, I just realized something about God and what a holy moment this is. And I just pause and I say, thank you, God. That's His glory. And you and I get to experience that on a regular basis. Or how about this one? He loves to reveal reveal His glory in our daily relationships. You know what's sad sometimes about the Christian life is that we reach out and we love others in His name and we pray for them, we encourage them, we even long suffer with them. At times we might even speak truth to them because that's a good thing to do. And I'm glad that we all do that because that's the nature of Christian and loving relationships. What you don't realize is that Jesus says that when you do that stuff and that He moves and breathes in that, that's His glory. That's the beauty of his perfections, working in and through your daily relationships. And again, many times we do a drive-by of those things and don't even pause to say, I just saw something glorious about God. I just saw God convict another person of something I've been praying for them to see for a long time. I didn't even thank him. I didn't even recognize it was him. (laughs) I just saw the Lord use me to encourage a brother or sister who may, you don't even know the whole backstory of that one. Maybe they desperately needed that. remember a few Sundays ago, a few months ago, I was coming into church here on a, it was when we actually had the 8 o'clock services, so pretty early, about a year ago maybe, and uh, I was just walking by one of the pews back there, and a guy caught my eye. And, uh, you know, sometimes somebody catches my eye, I'm like, oops, I'm late, I've got to get running, and, but I don't like to do this as a pastor, so I, I did a second look at him. And he caught my eye again. And so I walked over to him, and I started talking with him and uh, asking him a little bit about his life. And the guy said to me, he said, you know, I woke up today, and the day was the day that I'm going to kill myself. He said, it's gotten that bad. It's just that dark, and my life is over. He said, but I said to God, I'll at least go to church first. And he said, I'm so glad I bumped into you. What do you think I did? Do you think I said, well, I hope you have a good day. Let me pray for you right now. And, you know, no, of course I didn't do that. I put my arm around him. I said, come with me. I'm going to go introduce you to somebody because I do got to get to preach, but we're not going to leave you alone. You will not be alone the rest of this morning. I'm going to assign a pastor to you, and we're going to spend hours with you talking to you and loving on you, and then we're going to work with you because we do not want you to end your very life. We don't believe God would want you to do that either. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God was glorified in that interchange right there? Do you think that might be his glory working in a, in a relationship? I think things like that happen sometimes. Maybe somebody didn't tell you they want to kill themselves, but I think sometimes you don't realize the weight of what happens when you reach out in Christian love to somebody around you and what God does with that. Why? Because he loves to reveal his glory. Or how about this one? He loves to reveal his glory in our circumstances. As we trust him, as we pray, as we persevere, as we cry out to him, he loves to break into our lives and give us a taste of his glory. But here's the catch with this one. Many of us want it to be in a John 2 sort of way, right? We say, if you're going to give me your glory, you better change water into wine. And it better be all six jugs, God, because I want a big miracle from you otherwise it's not your glory and i sit there and go really really that's the game you're going to play with god what if he wants to give you his glory like he did to elijah in the middle of the desert, or with moses in the cleft of the rock in a still small voice what if he'd rather show up and give you himself as a sense of his glory rather than just changing all of your circumstances let me ask you church would that be enough some of you say no. You've got some work to do on your soul if you say that, because the reality is it is enough. He loves to break into our circumstances and give us his glory. And then finally, I said this already, but this one's so powerful for me as a pastor. He loves to reveal his glory in and through our church. Again, you know, one of the dangers of church today, and it happens at our venues and our campuses and here as well, is that we have consistency in church, which is a good thing. I mean, I joke sometimes, I walk in and say, give me the order of service. Oh, four songs and a sermon. Who would have thought? You know, we have consistency in church because, again, church people like consistency. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, if we mess with it, we get emails like crazy, you know. We're like, oh, yeah, they did this. I'm like, really, that's the worst thing that happened to you this week? You're blessed. But anyways, we like things consistent in church. But the danger of consistency is we miss the glory. Amen? We do. Again, it's like having a car or, or, and not knowing what you have because it's just there. And you think, well, everybody has this. No, everybody doesn't have this. And here's the deal, guys. There are, are Christians around the world, do you guys understand this, would salivate for the things that our church gets to do. Amen? They'd salivate for a public worship service. They would salivate. I was once in China, and we were getting ready to do a Bible study, and we started to praise and sing, and the leader actually looked at me and said, could you keep your voice down because we can get persecuted if they find out. I couldn't even sing loud. You and I get to sing at the top of our voices. Amen. I get to preach the Word of God unhindered. You get to fellowship with each other. You get to have Bible study, service times, evangelize. We are so blessed, and that's a glorious thing. God says, I'm moving in that, I'm breathing in that. That's my glory in your very life. Let's realize, guys, what we have. One of the first things we need to realize about Jesus' glory is that it's not reserved simply for grandiose visions of heaven or for the religious elite who hide away and pray. No, it's for all of us. It's for all of us who believe, and as we're going to see in a second, here, it's so that we might continue to believe. Now, as you're chewing on that, notice with me a second thing that Jesus makes clear about his glory, and that is that Jesus shows us his glory in the cross. We're switching gears big time here, but I'm following the text. He shows us his glory in the cross. Look at verse 4 of our story, and you'll see what I mean. It's fascinating what happens here. The wine runs out, and Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Which, by the way, most Bible experts take to mean Mary saying this, you're the son of God, the angels revealed that one to me, so let's kick in the divine resources and see some action. That's what Mary is saying here. There's not a simple statement of her just saying, hey, they have no wine, and you're my son, you know. No, you're the son of God, let's see a miracle. That's in essentially what Mary is hinting at. And in verse 4, Jesus gets it and he says this. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now let's get one thing out of the way right now. When Jesus refers to her as woman, that's not as cold as it might seem. If I said that to my mom today, that would be a cold response. If I said to her, woman, you know, that would not be a good thing. I would be in trouble. But when Jesus uses the word woman, and we translate here woman because it's the Greek word for woman, uh, it actually back then was a term of respect. But here's the deal about it. It was a very formal term of respect. It would be, the best equivalent would be madam. He's saying, madam, what does that have to do with me? Rarely was it used of a son to a mother because it was too formal. So why would Jesus use that word there? What most commentators point out is that he's moving here from being her son to the son of God. She addressed him as the son of God, right? Hey, do something about this. The angel's revealed who, I am, who you are. Okay, if you want to deal with me on that level, mom, then woman, what does this have to do with me? And then he says that very complicated phrase for some people. It doesn't have to be, uh, my is not yet come. What hour do you think he means? It's not the hour of a miracle. Some people say that, you know, the hour for me to reveal who I am. That's not what it is. Jesus will actually used that term, that phrase, my hour is not yet come, four more times before chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins the very last week of Jesus' life. And then four times over the next three years, John will record Jesus saying, my hour not come, my hour not come, my hour is not come. But then look at John 12, verses, where am I at here, uh, 23 and 24. And look up at your monitors and look at how Jesus finally uses this phrase, and now you will see. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be, here it is, glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So this was said in the very last week of Jesus' life, and he's obviously referring here to his death his death on a cross for our sins. And I don't find it a coincidence that he ties glory to his death. He says, my hour has come, and it's the purpose for I came, it's to reveal another glorious aspect of God. Now watch this, guys. Namely, for me to go and atone for your sin so that you no longer have to live under the burden of guilt, but you can know God your Father freely and start to take off from this point in life and walk with him. That's what Jesus is saying here. And again, what most Bible experts point out is that he's equating the cross and his death with glory. Why? I told you this earlier. Anytime we see something beautiful about God, it's his glory. And only God could take something as dark and sinister and awful as a first-century cross which was the place of capital punishment for criminals, only God could take that, completely flip it around, and say, this is going to be the place that I display my glory for your sin, for your very life. So glory in the cross. And that's why, by the way, that, well, it's covered now by the screen, oops. That's why, by the way, that Christians for 2,000 years have taken that dark death symbol across and made it into a symbol of what? Life. Because the cross is a symbol of life for those of us who understand why Jesus went to it. And even more, don't forget you and I are asked to take up what our cross and follow him. Now isn't that rich? See, here's why that's rich. We're asked to take up our own cross, our own sufferings, our own trials, you all have them, our own issues that we all wrestle with, our own demons. We're asked to take that up every day and drag that into our relationship with God and walk with Him, which is one of the most beautiful things about His grace. And many of us bemoan that. We sit there and say, well, there's no glory in that. I mean, you don't say it that way, but that's what you think. There's no glory in that. But God turns around and says, oh, yes, there is. There is glory in my son's cross. And guess what? There is glory in your cross. Simply put, guys, he loves to enter into your mess and shine his beauty. He loves to enter into the continual mess of your life and work his power, his grace, his goodness in and through your mass. He loves to show up in ordinary life. He loves to, to glory in the cross. And then this leads us to a third and final thing that this account teaches us about his glory. And we've been stating this all along, but it's a really good note to end on. And it's got a unique twist. And that is that Jesus shows us his glory to keep us believing. Now, notice that I didn't say there, because I have said it earlier, he shows us his glory so that we might believe. That's what the text says there. But when you look close at the text, it's actually meaning in many ways to keep us believing. Let me show you. Verse 11, let's read one last time, says this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You know what commentators wrestle with in this passage here, and tell me if you didn't maybe think this, is that if you're tracking with it, you go, well, didn't the disciples already believe in him, right? I mean, it says of Nathanael, like just a few verses before, that Nathanael believed, literal quote, and he even believed that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. So that seems pretty clear to me. So when it says here in verse 11 that after the manifestation of his glory here, they believed What does that mean? Because they already did believe. I like how one set of commentators, Comfort and Hawley, in their commentary called Opening the Gospel of John, say it. Look up here on the screen. I think they're spot on. They say this does not mean that they had not believed in him before. Evidently, they had believed, or they would not have started to follow him. In fact, Nathaniel believed Jesus be the Son of God and the King of Israel. This means they were given cause to believe in Jesus even further their faith was further strengthened in him. And you know what's cool? That's going to be the whole journey of the Gospel of John. (laughs) They started out with initial belief, just like many of us have. But 90 plus times this word believe is going to appear in the Gospel of John. And each time, you know what it is? It's just another nail in the strength of our faith in God through Christ. So let me ask you, do you need a strengthened faith today, yes or no? Yeah, If you say no, I got nothing for you. I think all of us do. I mean, on my best days when I'm driving home and I'm flying high and things are going good and Kim and I are getting along and the kids are being semi-good, when all that stuff is going on, even I go to bed on those days and I say, God, strengthen my faith, strengthen my reserve. May I trust more deeply in you. We all need that. That's the name of the game. The reality is is that that's what Jesus' glory in many ways is designed for us. That when we have a tough decision to make or the marriage goes south or we have parenting woes or we're confused or we're dealing with past hurts or we're discouraged and we need to believe, we say, he's given us his glory and his glory is seen in my life. I've experienced it. Maybe not as much as I want to, but I do. It's in his word. It's in my circumstances. It's in my relationships. It's in the church. I mean, it's in everyday ordinary life. It's in the cross. And because of his glory, I believe. Michelangelo, the sculptor of David and the Sistine, painter of the Sistine Chapel, high Renaissance artist, once said this. He said, Lord, make me see your glory in every place. And I think that should be the prayer of each and every one of us. Don't ever forget, his glory is real. It's the beauty of his perfections, the beauty of his character, the beauty of his very being. That's his glory. And he loves to display it through all sorts of ways in this world of ours, specifically even in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this cursory look here today uh, at this idea of your glory. And God, I can't pretend to do justice to such a topic as this, but we've tracked closely, God, this story of Jesus who manifested his glory at this time. And I pray, God, that there would not be one of us here today whether at our venues or campuses or here at Shea or watching online that would escape the implications of this for our lives, but that, God, we would be glory hunters, glory seekers, not for our own glory, but for yours. God-obsessed people who learn to fight the battle well. May that be our, our, our goal, God. May that be what we live upon. We love you. We're grateful for who you are, and we seek after you. God, again, thanks for this day where we celebrate our moms, uh, whether here or have passed on. Uh, God, we pray that we would give cogent thought, and if we can, even thanks to our moms today. And we pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, Amen. Amen. amen.